This is the 966, episode 32. Richard, what started as an idea to basically mic us up during our normal conversations on Saudi Arabia has really taken on a life of its own. Mabruk, sir. Thank you. It's a monster. It's a monster. <laughs> and on today's jam-packed episode, we have another monster. We have a really great discussion with Bilal Saab, who is senior fellow and founding director of the Defense and Security Program at the Middle East Institute and an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University. We'll also talk about Neom's hot streak, the PIF's new carbon trading market, huge opportunities in Saudi Arabia's water sector, and much more. Before we begin, subscribe if you haven't, and check out our new website for the show, the966podcast.com, where you can see everything in one place. Another reminder, subscribe if you haven't. Richard, let's get going. What's your one big thing this week? Excellent. Uh, just over a year ago, on February 8th, 2021, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman announced that as part of an effort to reform judicial guidelines and improve the legislative environment in Saudi Arabia, four new laws were to be introduced. Those four laws are uh, the law of evidence, personal status law, civil transactions law, and the penal code for discretionary sanctions. At the time, Crown Prince noted that the, the new laws, quote, the new laws represent a new wave of reforms that will increase the reliability of procedures and oversight mechanisms as cornerstones in achieving the principles of justice, clarifying the lines of accountability. Uh, although the law of evidence, uh, which is an extensive document intended to codify procedures for various parts of presenting, examining, and making decisions on evidence at the kings of courts, kingdoms, courts, and other judicial institutions, was the first to be approved by the Council of Ministers in December 21. The actual first law that will go into practice will be the, the recently announced personal status law. That will take effect in 90 days, so it'll be, you know, by the summer it'll be in place. Um, the personal status law is intended to address family preservation, family stability, the improvement of the status of family and their children, as well as the control in the judge's discretion to limit the discrepancy of judicial rulings on these matters. Among many other statutes, a woman is no longer legally obligated to ask permission to travel and marry. She is given the legal liberty to make personal decisions, include, uh, including over her marriage and children. According to the Crown Prince, quote, the law is comprehensive. It addresses all the problems that the family and women are suffering from, unquote. Um, this is really important, and and we've I'm not I'm not Saudi, and I'm I'm not a Saudi woman either. <laughs> <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> yeah, but but we have many friends who are Saudi women, and and in the run up to the um, uh, the decision to let women drive in 2018, and there had been rumors and and that sort of thing. But if you were talked to a Saudi woman prior to 2018. And, and so frequently the question by most, uh, most people not Saudi would say, well, what about your, uh, your, your right to drive? How important is this? And, and, and almost uniformly every Saudi woman would say, you know, it matters. It's important. But honestly, you know, my priority in terms of rights that are not available to me now are f within my family household. You know, the equitable uh, rights that help me deal with marriage, children, schooling, medical, these things. And, and that's why this law, this personal status law, is really, really important and a big step forward uh, and an important part of, of revamping the, the legal system in Saudi Arabia, which is ongoing. As, as I noted, there's three more to go. The law of evidence will be very important, too, 
especially on the business side and, and other things. But this personal status law is exceptionally notable. It's striking that when women were allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, it was widely covered in all of the mainstream media in the West as, I mean, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times, it was, you know, almost front page news. And yet this almost got no coverage um, outside of, you know, the, the focused on Saudi circles. And this is a way bigger deal than just the right to drive. And, and the right to drive was a huge deal. But this is all encompassing. It deals with family law. It's 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 a huge overhaul in in the law in Saudi Arabia. And it's it's really this is a great one big thing, Richard, because this is a huge deal, a meaningful change for Saudi women. You know, that's an excellent point, And I hadn't really thought about that. But that speaks to to so much of what's going on in Saudi Arabia, because the Saudis are looking around. I mean, all the way from Mohammed bin Salman in that Atlantic article. And they're basically saying, what the hell? Are you guys not paying attention? Mm hmm. And, but that's always been the case with the West. They sort of uh, latch on to the to the um, what they think are marquee issues, and uh, use that as barometers of of success or failure in terms of change. And they're not really understanding what's going on at at lower, deeper, more substantial levels. It's a good point. So so this this takes place. This comes into effect in probably what eighty days from now. Um, is there more to go on the legal side for it to be, I mean, because it's still a draft law, is that correct? No, everything's, so it's been, it's been all these, so he announced this in, in February 2021. So they've all been, you know, drafting these laws. And so the Council of Ministers has okayed the law of evidence and has okayed the personal status law. It's just that the personal status law is going to come online faster. So I think they're going through that, the civil transactions law, the remaining two, the civil transactions law and the penal code for, of discretionary sanctions are going through the drafting and getting approved by the Council of Ministers. So they're all should be you know coming along. It's just a matter they have to get through this, the process. And this goes to another point that we've actually really talked a lot about on the 966 here. But Vision 2030 is not just an economic reform plan, and that's something that gets all the press. But it's a social reform plan as well. This is a meaningful social change. This is something that is this is an evolution um, in Saudi Arabia from, you know, where they were in late 2015 to now. And it's a huge change. So very meaningful. And just to add a point, the law of evidence in particular, it, it, one of the difficulties for your foreign business in Saudi Arabia is that in, in, in Sharia law, there is no, they don't work on precedent. So, so for example, you know, there may, the, the same issue may have come before a court a thousand times, but the judge has the discretion to make a decision one way or another, which is a wild card, and you end up with some unfortunate judgments that are, are not consistent with precedent. And but it, but you know that's the kind of uncertainty that makes a business pause and go well, wait a second here you know if I can't if I can't reliably go to court and have a, a sense that uh, the ruling is going to be consistent with pre precedent law it, it, it's a problem and that's so little things like that like the law of evidence and, and essentially saying these are these are the guidelines you're going to work with and it's you know starting to establish precedent and, and what you can do in terms of any particular case. Exceptionally important. So that's on the business side, and on the personal status law, as we said, the, you know, these are this is this is right in the home, and this is why it's so important to women. Uh, Lucian, you're one big thing this week. Foxconn, the world's largest contract assembler of a consumer electronics, is in talks with Saudi officials about the prospect of opening a nine billion dollar factory in Neom, 
This is according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. The company is looking at jointly building a $9 billion multi-purpose facility that could make microchips, EV components, and other electronics like displays. Foxconn is known as the Hanhai Precision Industry Company Limited, Foxconn Trading Technology Group. Um, I think they should stick with Foxconn. It's a, it rolls off the tongue a lot easier. Uh, it's a <laughs> yes. Taiwanese multinational electronics contact, contract manufacturer, and it operates 12 plants in nine cities across China and assembles the, of course, iPhone for Apple. People familiar with the talks between Foxconn and Saudi Arabia said the potential factor would be a dual line Excuse me, the potential factory would be a dual line foundry for surface mount technology and wafer fabrication in Neom. Discussions over the project started last year. Um, the report added that Riyadh wants the company to guarantee that it would that it would direct at least two thirds of the foundry's production into Foxconn's existing supply chain, quote, to ensure there are buyers for its products and the project is ultimately profitable. According to the Wall Street Journal, Foxconn reported that full year net profit last year rose 37% to a record $5 billion on the back of robust demand for consumer electronics during the pandemic and cloud and networking projects. Um, meanwhile, Richard, a lot is happening in Neom right now, which is sort of why I was interested in this. $9 billion is a lot of money, but Saudi Arabia is pressing ahead with a massive green hydrogen project also located in Neom. This is according to Bloomberg. The kingdom is on track to sell carbon-free hydrogen from the $5 billion project by 2026. Um, and uh, the CEO of the uh, the head of the energy and water for um, U.S.-based air products and chemicals said that they will start building this uh, project very soon. Additionally, as we will discuss a little bit later, Neom is one of the hottest real estate destinations in Saudi Arabia right now, and that's according to Knight Frank. And the reason why I sort of mashed all these together, Richard, is when Neom was announced, it was so uh, ambitious, and it was just the ultimate Saudi mega project announcement. Big figure, big number, way in the future. And fast forward, you know, three to four or five years later, we actually see a lot of traction for Neom. And the doubters right out of the gate said it'll never happen. The realists out of the gate said it's going to happen. It's just like Vision 2030. It's a big goal. Wherever they land is going to be progress and better than nothing. And what it looks like to me right now is Neom is full steam ahead. What do you what do you think? Oh, that's a, this is interesting. And and I, I like your uh position of Neom, you know, having been a sort of aspirational mirage, dream, whatever it is, and, and increasingly uh, things are coming online and reality is striking. But, and it, you know, the old adage in basketball, you know, never up, never in. So if you don't take your shot, you'll never make a shot. Mm -hmm. uh, the point being is, is uh, Foxconn, a huge multinational, is doing, you know, uh, you know, just a really influential company is looking at Saudi Arabia. Now, this Foxconn operates, like you said, you know, 12 plants across nine cities, eight of them in China, the remaining ones in Europe, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam. And, and they have they have difficulties with their, you know, the China plants, especially when there's, a, when there's always a threat of a, a trade war between the U.S. and China. So they're looking elsewhere. And geostrategically, that the Gulf region makes sense. And traditionally, it's just let's go straight to Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Now, Saudi Arabia is in play, and it happens to be Neom. Uh, 
and it's in play. Now, you know, Foxconn is going to want, so, you know, Foxconn, I think, is probably going to put the Emirates and Saudi Arabia in competition, and they want huge incentives, financing, tax holidays, maybe direct equity co-investment and that sort of thing. I hope Saudi Arabia does it all because it's really interesting when you think about what, what Foxconn is looking at. They're looking at, at uh, semiconductor chips, electric vehicle components, Fascinating to have that neom when when you know just down the coast in King Abdullah Electro, uh, King Abdullah Economic City is going to be a Lucid factory. Mm-hmm. Great point. Um, and so you have you have these hugely important industrial bases that they're you know trying manufacturing hubs that they're trying to but which has all the knock-ons and and uh, you know one way to really uh, one way to really achieve the technical goals of the Vision 2030 is to embed the country into a global tech supply chain. So that's one of the reasons they, you know, when Riyadh says, we want you to guarantee that, that you know, direct at least two-thirds of the foundry's production into Foxconn existing supply chain. You know, they basically want to, if you come here, then we're not, we're not going to be an ancillary business. We're going to be part of your supply chain, which is a, a huge logistical and technical leap forward for a country like Saudi Arabia. And then when, if you match it with, a, with an EV plan in Lucid and all the things that might come from that over time, those are, and again, this isn't real yet. Foxconn is just looking and, and hope it may go elsewhere. Um, but it's quite exciting. And as you say, it would, be, um, it would transform a lot of things and, 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 and jumpstart a lot of things in, in terms of manufacturing and getting into a significant global supply chains. It's really cool that these things are kind of all coming together at once. And like you said, it's not a done deal, but there's just like a lot up in the air and it's kind of happening all at once. I should mention right now, too, and we included this today in our uh, daily newsletter on all things Saudi Arabia. The kingdom is planning a really ambitious land bridge project, which will link the western and eastern parts of the kingdom. It might cost as much as twenty six billion dollars. Arab News reported today. It's just like it's just very it, the, the timing of all of this is very interesting. It's like full speed ahead, you know, and, and it's just such a great point about Lucid being just down the coast, actually manufacturing electric vehicle cars. This would be very synergistic with the Foxconn plant, potentially. Potentially. Um, absolutely. Yeah, potentially. Just really cool. I, I, I sort of wanted to ask you, I had this in my notes and, and I don't know the answer. So I wanted to ask you, I, I know you love curveballs. Um, but I think what I, what I'm curious about, and I think what a lot of people are curious about is Saudi Arabia is, you know, I mean, oil prices are high, right? Aramco's operating profit last year doubled to a hundred billion dollars. So does that make Saudi Arabia a more attractive investment destination, knowing that their fiscal policy, their fiscal situation, the economy is humming along in, in your opinion? I mean, Foxconn, in theory, can go anywhere. And mm-hmm. by the way, it can be a bit of a letdown. I mean, Foxconn was going to build a $10 billion plant in Wisconsin in 2017. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, all the hullabaloo, Wisconsin and, and the, the governor gave them, you know, all sorts of incentives and, and that sort of thing. Well, today we're talking about instead of a $10 billion investment, it's a $800 million investment roughly, and they're doing LED screens or something like that. It's significantly reduced. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes, sometimes these things don't materialize. 
ultimately, a, a place like Foscon, a company like Foscon, has to look at, and it's going to be concerned with Saudi Arabia. You, you, all right, so they're going to consider, um, they're going to consider. I, uh, it's a small, it's not a huge market. It's not like we're going to do it in EU. Uh, although if they look at the r- larger, larger region, you know, it's a it's a big market. There's labor costs, uh, potential un- unpredictable operating environment. I think all those things are being reduced in Saudi Arabia. So I guess the answer to your question is, absolutely. It's, a, it's, it's, it's always a bonus to come into a politically stable uh, uh, economy that is growing and uh, appears to be well-managed. So I would say that's an attraction. But, uh, you know, Foxconn, if they come in, are going to be doing it for decades. So they have to look at other things. And they have to compare it, you know, point for point against other potential uh, sites. Mm-hmm. And which is why, you know, th- th- it may be a, a bidding contest. You know, it may be, all right, we're going to go to whoever gives us the best incentives. And, uh, you know, but the fact is they invited Saudi Arabia to compete. Mm-hmm. And and uh, five years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. It wasn't just handed to the UAE or they didn't just go look at the UAE and say, this is our shot in the Middle East. It's also interesting right. because, oh, please, no. Uh, no, no, exactly right. I mean, you know, that this sort of, it, it, this is this is like, uh, you know, they, 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 they got, it's an honor to be nominated. You know, they may not win it, but they actually have a run at it. And again, uh, it, you know, a, Five years ago, I don't think Foxconn would have thought about Saudi Arabia as a potential site. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. Okay, let's get on. Let's move on to our discussion with Bilal Saab, defense expert. Really great discussion we have with him coming up. I learned so much. I love these. I love that 966 is great. I mean, it's like a, a, a weekly education. This is awesome. It's so great. I just want to remind I just want to remind all of our listeners again, we segment all of this stuff out on YouTube. You can listen to any part of our full podcast. Uh, operational efficiencies on our side make sense for us to record the show all at once. And then but if you want to jump around, we make it easy for you to do so. We have show notes and different little links in there to get to exactly the part you want to listen to. It's all the same to us. We just appreciate you guys being here. So yeah, let's get to our discussion with Bilal. We're thrilled to be speaking now with Bilal Saab, who is joining us from Washington. Bilal is a political military analyst on the Middle East and U.S. policy toward the region and serves as senior fellow and director of the Defense and Security Program at the Middle East Institute, as well as adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University's Security Studies Program. Bilal, thank you so much for joining us on the 966 today. Great to be with you. Uh, yeah, Bilal, d- delighted to have you. You know, you you wrote this article and um in the Middle East, Middle East Institute called a gradual reset, reset with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I was really intrigued by it. And I, I, so the first thing I did was immediately went and invited you to join us on the show and you graciously uh, agreed to. Um, but uh, you, 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 are, you basically came to a conclusion that is, is striking, and that is that uh, Saudi Arabia is in the midst of a very large defense transfer- transformation plan. Quote, the most serious attempt at overhauling the kingdom's national security institutions since it was founded by the Al Saud tribe in 1932. Now, uh, you reached this conclusion based on your, your, your four-year-long research for your upcoming book 
Rebuilding Arab Defense, which I'm looking forward to. When is that going to be coming out, Bilal? Hopefully sometime next month or the month after. Exciting. Uh, uh, your research examined the goals, scope, and design of Saudi Arabia's defense transformation plan and included dozens of interviews with Saudi officials, Saudi-based U.S. military leadership, staffers, program managers in the Department of Defense with oversight responsibilities for this issue and representatives uh, of the U.S. private sector companies directly involved in Saudi, the Saudi transformation plan. Um, can you help us unpack this statement? And it's a big statement. The most serious attempt at overhauling the kingdom's national security institutions since it was founded by the Al Saud tribe in 1932. And, and perhaps one place to begin is, would, would you begin by helping us with an overview of the traditional national security institutions in Saudi Arabia that you're referring to? Right, sure. Uh, first of all, before I say a word, I want to thank you both for really giving me an opportunity to talk about something that at least I believe is important for uh, U.S. Middle East policy, but also largely, I would say, unknown or understudied, vastly understudied um, in Washington, which is this topic of uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, defense transformation plan. Believe me, Richard, very few people know actually that uh, it's happening in the kingdom, right? So my job um, is to try to tell as many people that it is happening because it has some pretty significant implications for our uh, interest in that part of the world and for our relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia, which right now, as you very well know, is at a very low point, right? Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for that opportunity. Also, thank you for giving me a chance to promote my book, which is Rebuilding Arab Defense. It's Absolutely. Out, um, sometime next month, I think, but you can already order it through Amazon or on the Lynn Reiner publisher's website. And I recommend you do that because you get a discount for 50%. It's an expensive book. I have no idea why they priced it that way, but it is yeah. what it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wish I had any control over that, but I don't. So uh, let me get back to your question, which is an important one. So uh, what are the traditional national security institutions of the kingdom? Um, so we're looking at the Ministry of Defense, right? And when you look at that, you're looking at the uh, land forces, the Royal uh, Saudi Land Forces, the uh, Air Force, uh, the Air Defense Forces, um, the Navy, and then they have a smaller unit called the Strategic Missile Force, which doesn't have a whole lot of you know missiles, but they bought a few of them from the Chinese uh, in the 80s, and they've had them since, uh, sort of like serve as a deterrent against the Iranians. Uh, that's the Ministry of Defense. Then you got the Ministry of Interior, right, and its own intelligence services. Uh, and then you've got the Saudi Arabian National Guard, or what we call SANG, which is supposed to be the more elite uh, unit in the uh, Saudi military, very separate from the regular armed forces, right? They've got their own training, they've got their own equipment, their own budget, their own processes, and so on and so forth. And they used to be viewed back in the day, less so now, but back in the day, they used to be called, viewed as the king's personal army, Right responsibilities for protecting the kingdom's territory, its borders, uh, its religious sites, its critical infrastructure, that means the oil facilities and so on and so forth. All the difficult tasks were assigned to the Sang because they, because they had that belief that they were more capable than any other branch in the Saudi armed forces. Now, all of these now are being not just reformed, but overhauled. I'm going to use that term again uh, that I used and that you uh, mentioned, Richard. They're being overhauled. It is truly a transformation process. It's like a completely different, you know, a new page uh, in terms of how to do business, how to conduct national security. And you can imagine it's going to take more than a week, obviously. Uh, absolutely. And it's, um, 
you know, and then you talk about uh, Saudi Arabian National Guard as as having a unique place, and you know, traditionally is drawn from you know Bedouin communities for right. absolute rock hard loyalty. So, just for context, Bilal, the uh, the armed forces what about one hundred and twenty seven thousand personnel altogether, one hundred twenty, one hundred twenty five, one hundred thirty thousand. Roughly, uh, uh, Saudi Arabian National Guard, a hundred thousand. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you know yeah, a little I'm bit guessing, less than yeah. the regular armed forces. Yeah. I, I, I think so. Um, but you know, for a relatively large country, it's not a very large, you know, military. Yes, very high tech weaponry, but in terms of personnel, in terms of manpower, not very large. It it is striking. So, mm -hmm. so presumably. As you say, these national security institutions are being overhauled in support of a larger defense transformation process. What what are the outlines of this trans defense transformation process? Trying to basically centralize everything under one uh, authority, under one command. Because as you said yourself before, you know, those security institutions used to be sort of the fiefdoms of different princes, right? right. And uh, each had their own prerogatives, their authorities over those institutions. They ran them like exactly like their own companies, their own organizations, right? Right. And so one of the biggest themes of this defense transformation process is to pretty much centralize everything under the command of a single individual and that whether rightly or wrongly, okay, under the crown prince and the de facto ruler right now, and that's Hamad bin Salman, right? right? Now, to me, the ultimate test of credibility of this defense transformation process is going to be whether they can actually merge the Saudi Arabian National Guard with everything else. Because right now it is it is still separate. When you've got a single chain of command. This is where everything becomes a lot more organized. Things are more joint as we do have them in our own military in the United States and in many other post-industrialized nations. So is the purpose of this, uh, let's, 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 let's look at the two ways. And it's either, this is interesting for a number of reasons. Traditionally, so you had Ministry of Interior Forces, you had uh, Ministry of Defense Forces, you had SANG, you also had Royal Security Forces. All, you know, if people looking at it and assessing, so this is so there's a, a sort of a, a, a balance of forces and everyone is, you know, it, it, things are calm and cool. It's really domestically focused. Right. Not really intended to be a projectable force. You know, in other words, we, you know, if, you know they- Actual war fighting. Yeah, exactly. They didn't right. send anybody to fight, you know, in, in 73 to fight anybody in, in the Yom Kippur. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, is, is it transitioning away from that into something different? Yeah, the short answer is yes. It's not just an issue of, you know, putting everything under a single command. It's also an issue of recognizing after so many years that the way that we've been doing this is completely wrong in the sense that we've produced a very ineffective military and also a grossly inefficient national security establishment, right? It was costing them a ton of money, but it was not making them any safer, right? right. And the war in Yemen was a, a, an example, a, a clear uh, example, evidence that none of this was working. This is now, what, year seven since uh, Operation Decisive Storm when they went into Yemen? And right. the, the Saudi military still struggles immensely in the battlefield, and they have not been able to achieve any of their strategic objectives. Yemen was not the trigger for this whole thing. It was MBS himself. He came in. He was assigned the defense portfolio by his dad, right, right. the king. And he told him, go ahead and fix this whole thing, and then bring me a more effective and more efficient Saudi armed forces. Under his leadership, he started these processes. 
Then Yemen happened, and it became much clearer in his mind that, boy, we really need to pursue this because look at the effects of uh, the war in Yemen, which is embarrassing us uh, regionally and globally. You know, this is one of the top spending nations on the planet, right? All this right. is a country that has roughly, let's just say, 2022 a defense budget of $50 billion. Okay, so that's immediately you're in top 10, right? Top 10 in the entire world. And yet, despite that healthy, significant defense budget, you have one of the most underwhelming armed forces in the world. It didn't make any sense. And the Saudis finally realized that we need to start learning how to convert that budget, that defense budget into combat power. I'm going to use simpler terms, how to actually develop military capabilities that you can actually employ, use on the battlefield and help you achieve your national security objectives. They didn't have to think about any of that before because we were the protectors. We were the guardians of the Saudis. We had what we called the oil for security covenant that we uh, signed with them in 1945, you know, uh, between Roosevelt and uh, the Saudi king, right? Right. And uh, this has expired in many ways, right? We're now focused elsewhere. We're paying attention to the Chinese, to the Indo-Pacific. We are less attentive to what's going on in the Middle East for all sorts of reasons, some right, some wrong. And the Saudis have realized that, okay, we can't really rely on the Americans as much anymore. We have to start developing our own indigenous, independent self-defense capabilities. So is this going like to, like I said before, I'm probably going to say this many times throughout this conversation with you. Is this going to take a long time? Yes. But the good news is that they've actually realized that this is really necessary. It is now more necessary than ever. Because A, of the war in Yemen, B, of the fact that the strategic environment has changed and the relationship with the United States has also changed, making this really now mandatory. Help me uh, walk out a little bit with me. Not I'm not walking. You hopefully will walk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not capable of walking on the, on the subject. So, you know, the th things you learn, let's talk about what they learned in Yemen, Yemen about their forces. So, it ruled not, you know, first thing you learn and something the U.S. has, has, has sort of stumbled over repeatedly is air superiority in a foreign country right. does not mean control. Sure. Does, does not. And so, so obviously in Yemen, uh, Saudi Arabia has air superiority. But, uh, you know, when they went in and tried to uh, uh, apply control over territory, what, what did they discover about their forces? They learned that they couldn't shoot straight, they couldn't communicate, they couldn't move. They couldn't locate the enemy. <laughs> I mean, I'm so, not right, joking. Right, no, I mean, other than that, Bilal. <laughs> oh, what, what, what else do you want? So, so I mean, uh, how are you going to fight a war and win a war if you can't do these basic things? So is this, what, what, and, and I, you, know, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, you know, is, has you know, criticized widely for a number of reasons. I, I think he has a number of, of notable skills. I think he's, he's determined and I think he's uh, thorough. And I, I imagine he went through and he said, all right, this is, how do you go back and remediate these problems? And is this part of what they're doing? Yes, I mean, that, that is essentially what the Defense Transformation Plan now is tackling. All these problems from both a civilian side and a military side. This is why this is really comprehensive. This is why we're calling it transformation. This is not just fixing tactical operational issues and how to really better conduct logistics and how to better conduct communication and so on and so forth. No, no, this is really how to actually fully leverage the capabilities of the Ministry of Defense which is supposed to produce these soldiers, to train these soldiers, to actually enable these soldiers, to pr provide them with all the necessary equipment 
none of those things were actually taking place before, right? So generating the force, right? That's what we call in the Pentagon, generating the force and managing the force. And now they are installing all these processes, which again, are gonna take a long time because they're gonna face all sorts of cultural and structural challenges. That way that would have an immediate or demonstrable effect on the battlefield. You cannot fix this purely on the battlefield. You have to fix it also from an institutional slash organizational slash bureaucratic perspective as well. And this is what they're doing. Fascinating. So I'm going to ask two questions to get and by to the, the way, question. Richard, you, 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 you hinted at it. And this is very accurate. We, the most powerful military in the planet, had to go through all these processes over a period of 80 years from the Charles Dick Act of 1903 all the way to Goldwater Nichols, 1986, we had to go through all these problems that the Saudis are going through right now. So the jointness, right, in terms right. of the individual services actually no longer being just individual fighting individually and acquiring their own equipment. Oh, I'm Army, I'm going to go buy a tank because that's exactly what I want. I don't give a damn what the Air Force wants. Air Force is going to buy a fighter jet. The Navy is going to buy a ship. We don't do that anymore in the United States, obviously. Everything is joint, right? We have a chairman of the Joint Chiefs who is now it's got much more statutory powers and new responsibilities and so on and so forth. This is what the Saudis are learning, that what they used to do where the individual services would just run the show when it came to acquisition and procurement, and of course, a ton of corruption, a ton of it, which was the Achilles heel of the entire Saudi system. They're reforming all this. And yes, you can hate MBS as much as you want for all sorts of reasons. But when it comes to the issue of corruption, especially in the defense sector, which is so ripe for corruption because there's so much money in it. Right. He's tackling this in ways that are extremely aggressive. And it's going to take some time because those norms, those legacies of corruption are so old. So on, on the economic side, right, the Vision 2030 side, and when we were going talking back and forth in, in, in preparing for this, this episode, you know, so there's a Vision 2030 side, and it's always fascinating when Lucian and I talk about things and we have guests on, and, and we're talking about the economic side and, and you know, this uh, initiative, this initiative, and, and so much is going to create X number of jobs and so on and so forth. So much of that is dependent on their revamping of their education system in order yes. to create employable Saudis. Absolutely. Sounds like the exact same thing here. Basically, are they going to back to ground zero on training and how they train their, their military personnel? In many ways, yes. And I'm glad you mentioned Saudi Vision 2030 because a lot of people confuse the defense transformation process with Saudi Vision 2030. I'm here to tell you those are two very separate processes. As a matter of fact, the defense transformation plan started before 2030, Vision mm. 2030, right? Mm. Uh, now, is there synergy between the two? Are there is there a lot of overlap? Of course there is. You can't really do defense transformation without an economic revival. And you cannot do an economic transformation without some semblance of security, right? Right. So philosophically speaking, conceptually speaking, of course, there is congruence. But operationally speaking, in terms of processes, in terms of how each track is unfolding, they're very separate, right? Now, how can you engage in transformation in the world of defense without engaging in a similar parallel transformation process when it comes to your own culture, to your own society, changing a lot of norms, changing a lot of behavioral uh, attributes in your society. All of that has to be sort of happening in parallel. This is why this is so challenging, but at the same time exciting because it is actually finally starting, right? It's a marathon and they're at the very beginning, 
But hey, let's get excited because they've actually started. Before, they didn't even recognize that those were actually problems and fundamental uh, um, challenges that they have in their military. Now, they finally realized and accepted, you know, what's the expression? The first, you know, sign of progress that you actually accept that you have problems, something like right. that, right? Same thing with the Saudis here. So uh, that- they're starting, and this is not the fourth time I say it, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> That sound bite is priceless. Uh, Lucian, I know your eyes are lighting up. I see them. Because, you know, we, it's, it's extraordinary the number of things that Saudi is trying to accomplish at the same time. And that's, yeah. but that's also because it's required, because they have so many things they have to, right. have to right. weave in together and, have, and try and reach a, an outcome at the end that has all these multiple inputs. And so it's, it is extraordinary. And it it's is a good kind of pressure, time. Richard. Right. It's a good kind of pressure because you yeah. actually have to do these things. But you just wonder, and I think you hinted at it, is it too much? Is he biting off more than he can chew? I mean, just to give you an example, do you know how many in it? Just take a guess. How many initiatives are now part of the defense transformation plan? Just take a guess. Give me a number. I'm not going to do it to you because I, I, always, I always ruin it. Go ahead, Lucian. 50. 50. 50? You're not even close. <laughs> So I, I'm guessing way too low then. Yeah, no, clearly. No, you, you, yeah, you you are way too low. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna outbid Lucian. One dollar, Bob. <laughs> One fifty. All right, let's say all right. So 150. We are now at 308. Wow. 308 initiatives. Right. On this defense transformation. That's right. Plan, and yep. these these encompass what everything from from A to Z. I kid you not. How do you do logistics? How do you do human resource personnel? How do you do accounting? How do you do all sorts of management? How do you recruit? How do you promote? How do you retire people? How do you do acquisition? How do you do jointness? How do you do strategic planning? How do you come up with a national defense strategy? How do you come up with a national security strategy? All those things that we take for granted that we do and we have such very well-oiled machines and processes, they are learning now from scratch. All right, you lead me to my next question. And this is really exciting, Bilal. This is awesome. Um, and nobody so, knows about this thing, sadly, but hey, I'm here to say it. Well, this is why it's awesome. I'm ex- this, is, this is great. This is like my favorite professor's class. I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, all right, so give us, a, give us a brief rundown of what the existing, so the, yeah, basically the primary two vehicles for U.S participation in the Saudi defense sector is the United States military training mission, which is, has engaged you typically with the, the armed forces and the U.S. Army Pro Office of Program Manager, uh, OPM Sang with Saudi Arabian National Guard. All right. Can you right. give us a little brief, uh, yep. a brief understanding of what their role has been traditionally uh-huh. and you know where they are now? Yeah, sure. I want to make it clear, Richard, that we're not the only ones helping the Saudis. You've got the Brits, too. They've got a pretty significant presence also advising on all sorts of, you know, initiatives. But you've got us and... Um, let me interrupt other- there. Let, let me interrupt there. Sorry. Mm-hmm. In terms of philosophy, strategic, basically, are, are we in the Brits in the same ballpark in terms of what we might be conveying? Oh, yes, we are. Yeah, right. Yes, we are. And if there are any tactical differences, that's fine. This is not really going to harm the Saudis. Right. The problem is that it's within the American camp where we have to be actually more uh coordinated and where it has there has to be unity of effort but i'm gonna get up to that later if you want yeah perfect yeah okay so use minimum what do they do at opm saying use minimum uh since the 50s um yeah they've been operational since the 50s yeah 
they more or less uh, work closely with the Saudi regular armed forces, not the elite, more elite saying, on all sorts of tactical operational forms of security cooperation, right? So with a little bit of training and a little bit of advising and here and there, right? And then OPM Sang does the same, but with the uh, Sang, and they've been operational themselves since 1973. So 20 plus years after US Minim started working. Now, the cool work of uh, defense management and that kind of type of advice that we need to provide to the Saudis is not actually done by these two organizations. It is done by what we call defense management specialists that we've sent from the Department of Defense to the Pentagon all the way to Riyadh, conduct trips on a regular basis, obviously interrupted during the COVID uh, period. Uh, and um, they would obviously liaise, they would coordinate with use minimum UPM, UPM saying, but they are the, what we call the subject matter experts. They're the ones who best understand what defense institutional capacity means, what is defense reform, defense governance, defense management, which is a very different universe from what typical soldiers understand. And those soldiers are in OPM saying and in USMIDM. Those guys are not trained to offer that kind of advice to the Saudis. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you the long story short. Despite those uh, visits since I would say 2018, where we'd send our people and provide all sorts of advice on defense institution building, uh, we got to a point where uh, there was some significant disagreement between our people in USMIDM and those defense management specialists that many, in many ways led to the uh, discontinuation of those trips to the kingdom, okay? They disagreed on what kind of advice needed to be provided to the Saudis and what the Saudis really required and what they needed. And for some reason, the Saudis sided philosophically with USMIDM, therefore ending this entire advisory uh, process coming from Washington and coming from the Pentagon. So that by default has led to use Midim now being the sole provider of advice on defense reform, which is a huge problem. Because as I told you just now, USMINIM is not equipped, it does not have the personnel, doesn't have the expertise to provide any kind of advice on defense reform and defense institutional capacity building. My hope is that we're gonna send back those defense management specialists and that we're gonna have this unity of effort as I told you before, and we're gonna have this agreement amongst Americans first and foremost before we give advice to the Saudis. Now, are the Saudis exploiting these schisms? Yes. But we need to be, first of all, together as a team, USA team, being on the same page in terms of what kind of advice we need to provide to the Saudis. Because what we were doing before was good until it was interrupted and then discontinued because of our disagreement with personnel inside USMIDO. So the defense management specialist started in 2018. When did they uh, leave off? After just the very recently, Richard, just like months ago. And is this... Um is this an institutional thing? Is it people getting upset about getting into territory? Is it a personal thing? Yep, is... and I wish I could tell you more. I mean, I know more, but I don't want to say more. Understood. I don't want to get in trouble. Understood. So it's not, it's, it's real life bureaucracy getting in the way. Real life bureaucracy, but then also egos. Like, oh, I know better how to advise the Saudis. Who the hell are you to come from Washington and tell me I've been here since 1953? Ah, uh, yes, I can see that. You know what I mean? I can absolutely. And then just having that. this, this, 
privileged access to Saudi officials that we Yusminim don't want you to jeopardize you guys coming from Washington and so on and so forth. It's just those petty things that frankly could have been easily managed, but they were not for whatever reason. And there were no adults in the room to actually coordinate all this. Lucian, I see your cat in the background. That is so cute. <laughs> There's actually two in the background. It's like yeah, a word. Two of them. Waldo. I only see one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was a pause. That was like uh, in um, in uh, Up, the movie, the Disney movie. Whenever they see a squirrel, the dogs are like squirrel. <laughs> so there you go. Well, you know, the only thing is, at least it's not this two kids crawling around back there, because that means they would have gotten loose in the house. Yeah. So look, it's unfortunate where we are. I don't think it's unfixable. You know, I'm trying to do my best in my personal capacity to try to get get us back in the game and try to really advise them on the core matters of defense institution building. But we are now um, advising in a fashion, in a way that is far less extensive than what we had in 2018, 2019, 2020. You or mentioned even 2021. You mentioned the Saudis. Are they? Where are they on this? Are they they're a little bit confused, Richard? They're a little bit confused in terms of, you know, they're getting different sort of sources of advice, different kinds of advice from us. And they are much more comfortable with the people that have been dealing with at USMIDM. And so uh, it's just not ideal right now. So is that capacity, the USMIDM capacity, is it? Uh, you know, I, 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 this is uh, it's silly for this me. This is to like, come you in. know, turning a cat into a dog. You know, Yusmin uh, uh, is, speaking of cats, you know, Yusmin <laughs> is a cat. I don't want to turn him into a dog. I don't want them to, you know, be the experts when it comes to tactics and operations. But if I'm going to turn you into a defense management, you know, uh, kind of type of organization, then obviously this is going to take a massive overhaul on our part, which, which just might be an opportunity for that, by the way. You know, in this, in this era now, of in this period, in this moment in our relationship with the Saudis, where our top priority, in my opinion, and of course I'm biased because this is my field of research, is to actually help them get to the finish line with this defense transformation process, then maybe this is an opportunity for us to overhaul USMITM, right? So okay. we can't just say, oh, they're not well equipped to provide that kind of advice, you know, just put them on the side and they don't really know what they're doing when it comes to defense management. Okay, well then, maybe you have an opportunity to overhaul them themselves so that they can actually provide that kind of advice and not just rely on the episodic trips that would happen during the year from those defense management specialists coming from the Pentagon, right? So that, that was my, my question. Can you change this cat into a dog? So let's say, let's go, let's go, let's look at the Saudis of the client. Let's look at the client. Are, the, are they dissatisfied with the, the situation? Uh, they, do they were. They, they were they, they were dissatisfied with the defense management specialists yes. or no I they just, were because they also heard you know the biased opinion of our people at USMIDM. so they are they they're more comfortable now with the current situation but in your in your it's your assessment that they're not getting the best advice in terms of their transformation plans yes and i'm gonna get in trouble on this but i don't care um well you're you're an analyst you have an opinion and and, right. and you've done your research and i agree with you uh, you know, our goal should be to help them achieve this this transformation. I always believe, and, and this is either business or, or defense or any other thing, I always believe that, in, you know, being engaged is better than not, and uh, it's going to help us in the long term. Right, and, right. And that so, doesn't mean imposing anything on the Saudis. At the end of the day, you know, the customer is no. always right. They're the ones who are going through the transformation process, right, not us. Right. And all we can do is provide advice. But I want us to provide the right kind of advice. That's all I'm saying. Right. So, and by the way, because we've done it before, 
right? It's not like we come here with no expertise, with no experience in this. And so, and you're the ones who called us out, by the way. The Saudis were smart <laughs> enough to call us up and say, look, we're about to start a massive process of defense transformation. We need your help. And that spurred the defense management specialists. But as it turns out, we've got some infighting that has, yeah. has, has yeah, truncated Yeah, we need to clean that. it up. And by the way, it happens not just in Saudi. It happens in many other places around the world. But somehow we manage them. Somehow we contain them. But in Saudi, it just blew up. It's a longstanding relationship. I can see how people get territorial. But also- exactly. You know, but these are also people who are invested in the relationship and want to see it succeed and actually should be should be quite enthusiastic about the transformation that's underway. So let's, right. let's, there's let's, nothing conspiratorial. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, Richard. These are just objective differences of opinion in terms of, oh, this right. is how we feel they should be, you know, pursuing this transformation process. We don't agree with you guys coming from the Pentagon. And so it's just differences of opinion. So let's look at Saudi's the let's the transformation process itself. You said this began before Vision 2030. Vision 2030 is 2016. King King Salman uh, became king January 2015. Uh, MBS is named uh, you know Minister of Defense shortly thereafter. So this this let's say this has been running on since the, the 2015, roughly. Yeah, I mean around the time of him becoming defense yeah, minister. So it's not like it was happening years and years before, right? And and w what. What have you? Can, what can you discern from what progress have they made? Uh, this is what's exciting. It's actually um, a number of elements. So, you remember I told you that back in the day they were not able to formulate any kind of national defense strategy, national security strategy, which you would think is kind of basic, right? I mean, this is how you organize your armed forces. This is how you plan for the future. This is how you identify your threats. This is how you identify your requirements, your missions, and so on and so forth, right? Right. You know how excited we get when we formulate our national defense strategy. Now they have one. OK, first time ever in the history of the kingdom, they actually have one. It, it puts everybody in the same page, aligns everything. Everybody's swimming in the same direction. It's all good. They're much better at logistics. Hmm. They're much better at jointness. Uh, there is some element of combined arms going on. And by combined arms, I mean, obviously, air assets and ground assets working together. Right. Uh, human resource management, the human capital piece, there's a lot of progress there. I am most excited by the fact that they now hire females to the armed forces, but also staff uh, in the Ministry of Defense itself. They actually do accounting now. Okay, They know what money is coming in and what money is coming out. Um, what else can I tell you? They, um, that, that's a lot, by the way. I think that that's, is a lot, that, right? Those are, those are significant those things. It's not a done deal, and these are all processes that are going to mature with time and so on and so forth. But the point being, none of those things even existed, right? On acquisition, let me give you an example on acquisition, right? As I told you before, just like how we used to do it, right? Individual services will go buy whatever the hell they want. They go to the defense minister or the ministry of finance and say, here's our list, here's our shopping list, go ahead and get it not the same anymore today this entire process is completely overhauled they have an entire office within this transformation plan that does acquisition in a very strategic way right and they form new entities what we call GAMI and SAMI right GAMI is this um uh, first of all obviously both government owned but GAMI is the sort of the regulator right that deals with policy when it comes to acquisition SAMI is the company is the manufacturing company and they supposedly work together to influence issues of procurement and acquisition, right? It's a little bit more organized now. It's a little bit more bureaucratic, but the good kind of bureaucracy that never existed before, 
So those are some of the examples that really show that there is demonstrable progress taking place in Saudi, where in ways like before it was all corrupt, everybody running their own shows, their own shops, and nobody bothered to talk to anybody or coordinate or integrate. Yeah, everything was Remember what I told you right in the beginning, right? The ultimate test for me is whether they're going to be able to integrate Sang into the entire Saudi military. I haven't seen that yet, but if MBS pulls this off, then Boyd's is going to be impressive. Um, I just we talk a lot about uh, on the economic side, and this is why it's exciting to talk about the defense side uh, about so many things. So, for example, take it for example the the Saudi the uh, Aramco IPO. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pulled off, but people don't understand everything that happened had to happen before that. You know, again, in terms of uh, international accounting practices, so many things needed to happen. For that result to be achieved. Yep. Similar thing here. So much is going on underneath the surface, and just to get a national defense, you know, yes. uh, strategy. Yes. Uh, and again, uh, again, you know, we we know in the West that Mohammed bin Salman is a is a lightning rod in many ways. But you watch the watch him work, and you watch him institutionalize, rationalize, uh, uh, motivate, move you know, insist, uh, uh, and you, as you say, in, in a non-corrupt way, you know, a non-corrupt way, you know, it, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating to hear that this is ongoing in the defense sector, too. Yep. Um, it starts at the top, but it can't stay at the top, right? There's a limit to how much he can urge, how much he can incentivize, how much he can push, how much he can pressure, because this also has to be from the ground up right? Mm -hmm. This requires, as we discussed before, societal change and cultural change, which is why this is going to take a long time to change those behaviors, those norms that have existed in Saudi society for so many decades, right? Right. So it's very good to have that kind of leadership, which by the way, we also saw in the UAE with Hamad bin Zayed, right? So he's taking a page out of that playbook where he is the uh, champion of this process. He is the enabler he is the uh, most excited person in the country, pushing, moving things forward. But you still need the buy-in and the cooperation of, you know, everybody else who's actually implementing this entire process. And I- the Saudi work ethic when it comes to public sector institutions, including the army, is not stellar. Okay, I'm not saying that as a personal opinion. There are studies conducted by Saudis sure. themselves that will tell you that that work ethic has always been problematic, okay? It's a little bit different in the private sector, but in public institutions, man, you need a lot of change to really get people to come to work on, you know, on time and leave work, not early, but, you know, the full eight hours or whatever, how many hours Saudis work, okay? Uh, That's going to take time to change, okay? The military, and this is where, you know, the, consistent with Prussian theory, right? The military could be the vanguard of societal transformation, right? If they transform, then they're going to push everything else to transform with it, right? But this is this is how you see this is so challenging and, and, and it's going to take such a long time because this, as we've seen it also in the UAE, it takes decades and decades and decades. The good news is that they've once again started this process. It started the marathon. Now it's up to implementation processes, and you need those unsexy processes of implementation because they're the ones who are going to get you from point A to point B and C and D and F, 
the strategy is very important. Okay, the ideas are very important, but the process of execution is as important as the idea itself. And this is what the societies are always excited about. They're always in love with oh, 20 vision, 2030, you know, vision, right? And all that. that's great. But I need you to tell me how to go, how do I get from point A to point B? Because that's more important. Those are the building blocks of the plan as opposed to just the overarching idea. This we is are- where they need a lot of work. This is where they need a lot of help. On this show, we often use the term unpack because we're talking trying to unpack issues for an audience and that sort of thing. But in my mind, and, and a lot of what we're doing is trying sort of being uh, monitors of implementation. Right. Because you know the Saudis, Saudis are masters of the, the glitzy uh, and the ex- extraordinarily awe-inspiring uh, announcement. And we can we promote that. I think that's great because you know if you don't have aspirations, what's the point? And right. And they have an opportunity to have aspirations, but we always want to circle back and see what the implementation is. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, again, you've been you've said it twice now, at least twice. You know that this takes time, but the important thing is not that it takes time. The important thing is that the journey's begun, and it takes people, trained mm-hmm. people. You know where they're getting those people to staff the Ministry of Defense and to uh, put them in the armed forces from the private sector. They're getting them from the oil. Uh, companies. How are they paying? How how are they paying them? Well, this is a problem. See, so when you're used to a certain salary in the private sector, let's just say you work for Aramco, and all of a sudden you're going to be working as a analyst or defense professional in this new Ministry of Defense, right? Uh, It's not going to be the same salary. So those incentives are going to be a huge problem. But it's also in addition to the financial compensation. There's this new training where you're literally are creating. A defense professional. There are no defense professionals in the kingdom. Okay, everybody you see working in the Pentagon, whether it's a systems analyst, whether it's uh, a policy analyst, whether it's a tech person, or whatever it is, all those categories of jobs that you see in the Pentagon are being created from scratch in the Saudi Ministry of Defense. And where are they getting them? They're getting them from the oil sector, and so they have to learn an entirely different lexicon. And it is hard to, uh, you know, because, you know, the, the holy grail for a young Saudi for decades was to get a job at Saudi Aramco. Now they can get a job at Saudi Aramco. Maybe they get one at PIF. Maybe they go or to the Neon. Air Force. Yeah. And, well, I didn't realize Armed Forces was an option now. And that's, that's, that's awesome. I think that's fascinating. And, and I agree with you, especially if you're, if you're buying into that vision of creating something. And I agree with you also, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the military can be a, you know, a sort of a, the embodiment of, I don't know what the proper term, but the vanguard of change. Vanguard, that's right. Um, that's Prussian theory. Yeah, uh, just interesting stuff. All right, so um, let, let's move the lens back a little bit. Sure. Um, so we have the U.S. Oh, let me let me ask: Is this going to get resolved, or is it just going to fumble along? What's your guess? Which one? The 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 the, the current. You, 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 is, is it if you had to put money on it? Is is Usumidum going to you know evolve from a cat into a dog, or is something else going to be? Uh, I am more hopeful that that disagreement that I described to you would be uh, fixed sometime in the near future. But as far as Usumidum reconstructing, I mean that's going to take also some time. Right? So where, <clears throat> in terms of this transformation, you said Saudis are getting input from lots of people. Are they getting mm-hmm. input from the Russians and the Chinese? Ah, uh, good question, Richard. I have no idea. I sure hope not. But I suspect that there isn't much Russian advice. 
I suspect that there is some kind of Chinese advice, but is limited and not really related to strategic processes and planning processes and so on and so forth. It's probably much more limited to equipment and hardware and how to like co-manufacture things, whether it's unmanned aerial assets, drones, and so on and so forth. So I'm less worried about that than actually getting into the deep fabrics and foundational issues of this transformation process. So for now, we're good. But boy, if this thing goes to the toilet, the, the relationship itself, then you could imagine the Saudis, I would say this very openly, shooting themselves in the foot and forgetting all the advice that we've given them on how to actually transform and start to incorporate Chinese concepts, which frankly, I don't know what those would be. Because the Chinese for many years, obviously, inherited a lot of the Soviet methodologies and a lot of the Soviet thinking, right? So I don't know how much of it is purely Chinese per se. But the bottom line is, is that they're going to be mad at us and we're going to be mad at them. And this disagreement, this low point in the relationship is going to continue and it's going to escalate. Then you wonder what is the future of this advisory process that we have in the kingdom is going to be, right? And whether they're going to substitute it with something else or they're just going to rely more heavily on the British, Right. I don't know. So let, let me add, let, let's do some comparative, uh, uh, some comparative assessments here. Your book is Rebuilding Arab Defense. Did you look at def you know, defense? Oh, yes, an entire chapter on Saudi. And so but you also looked at them across the region, right? I've got four case studies, one in the UAE, one Saudi, one Lebanon and one Jordan. Uh, can you give us a snapshot comparison, snapshot of each one, snapshot, you know, like, you know, 30 seconds, and then, you know, where Saudi fits in among all this in terms of the, the progress it's making along the spectrum? Sure, of course. Uh, I describe the Saudi case as the exemplar that is everything that is dysfunctional when it comes to U.S. Go uh, Arab country defense cooperation. Okay? <laughs> Seriously. This is sort of, that was like my reference. Uh, if you want to understand everything that's wrong when it comes to U.S. military assistance to the region, look at the relationship with the Saudis because everything that's happening in Saudi has uh, a lot of applications in all the other countries that we deal with in the region. You're talking about, you're talking about this recent inability to get on the same page by the Americans. No, I'm talking about just the very nature of our security cooperation uh, with the uh, Saudis, which is very substandard, right? Huh and the type of military assistance that we provide them, which is more trucks, more guns, more money, as opposed to you know institutional capacity building, which we only just very recently started to do with the Saudis. And now, by the way, we just got kicked out. So anyway, the Saudi case to me is the most disappointing, but also the most exciting. Why am I you know, contradicting myself? The most disappointing because I told you that it has had the biggest, the most structural problems when it comes to security cooperation with us for many, many years. But the most exciting is because finally they're starting to fix those problems. And we are also fixing some of our own approaches to how we handle assistance with the Saudis, focusing a little bit less on trucks and guns and more on institution building. The Lebanese case, I call it working against all odds. Because the Lebanese case is the one case where if it worked in Lebanon, it could work anywhere else. Because the country is so fundamentally screwed up in terms of its um, governance structure, in terms of the nefarious actors that it has that work as spoilers, whether it's Hezbollah or uh, the Syrians back in the day when they were uh, occupying the country. And despite all that, despite all these fundamental challenges, we somehow miraculously, over the past decade at least, 
were able to turn the Lebanese military from a pretty much irrelevant force into a very respectable force because of our assistance and because of our commitment to institution building. Uh, the Jordanians are one of the most tactically proficient, operationally sound armed forces in the entire region because of our assistance, but they also fall short tremendously when it comes to issues of institutional capacity because Again, for many years, we never bothered to help the Jordanians on that level, okay? When we give the Jordanians more money than anybody else in the entire world, by the way, when it comes to uh, Pentagon funding, I'm talking about not just in the region, in the entire world. This is what I oversaw when I was in the Pentagon. And yet the Jordanians are still unable to sustain any of it. That's a big problem. That's a big, big problem. So, so this is more than Israel? <laughs> Say it again. When you say aid and assistance in terms of giving to Jordan. Yeah, our own money. We give it to Jordan. They buy equipment with it. This is what we call foreign military financing or what we call also triple three funds from the Pentagon, right? Right. So different, uh, different pots, let's just say, from the State Department and from the Defense Department. And despite all this money flowing into Jordan, every single year, they're still unable to sustain any of their equipment on their own, which is dramatically awful, right? I mean, you cannot you cannot tell with a straight face to any member of Congress that Jordan will one day graduate from this assistance and actually on its own sustain all this equipment. They can't. The moment we pull the plug, this entire assistance will fall apart. Now that applies to everybody else in the region, at least those who are less wealthy, like the Jordanians, like the Bahrainis, like the Omanis, like the Lebanese. The difference with the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Qataris, which are wealthy countries, they buy their own equipment. They don't need their money from us, but they have the same problem. They still don't know how to maintain, they don't know how to sustain. So this is what we're helping them with now. And this process has slowly but surely has started. So the UAE is... is, is. UAE is, to me, <clears throat> I, I, I had to add it in there in the book because it, it could serve as a counter argument to my argument. The entire argument of my book is we need to stop providing these countries more equipment, more trucks and guns, and we need to help them with institutional capacity building to sustain all this stuff. That is the essential argument, the core argument of the book, right? And then here comes the UAE, which has the same exact institutional deficits, the same fundamental problems when it comes to all these uh, all this infrastructure of management and governance when it comes to defense. And yet they were able to overcome all these and become one of the most, I would say, effective militaries, not just in the region, but in the entire world. Little Sparta. Now, how the hell? Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Jim Mattis. <laughs> thank you, Jim Mattis, for endorsing my book. Um, <laughs> how the hell were they able to do that is a mystery which I get into in the book, and I'm not going to say everything now because I won't. Yeah, don't, no, yeah save some for the book. Come right. on. But but it's it's a fascinating case of how they were able to fast track their military modernization. How were they able to elude the trend of military ineffectiveness that is uh, the story of almost all of the Arabs, right? And a lot of this has to do with leadership. A lot of this has to do with learning from the best, a.k.a. us and learning how to buy the things that they need as opposed to the things that are just shiny and so on and so forth. It's a fascinating story, but I still end up with the argument that have all of this is not sustainable 
if they don't pursue those very necessary processes that right now the Saudis are pursuing. Okay. Um, Lucian, looks like you're leaning in. Uh, did you want to jump in? I had no, a question. No, no, sorry. Uh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 had a, I had a question. Let's let's move out. Let's move back a little. So let's let's we're talking about national defense strategy for Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. which, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a, a softer here. Um, There's no such thing. Well, well, well. One of the big deals now, and it's it's sort of a an American, uh, I think it's American wish, you know, American fantasy. Now that somehow uh, Israel has relationships with with uh, states in the region and and that sort of thing, but the the issue of you know GCC interoperability has always been out there. Sure. When Saudi Arabia looks at its national defense strategy and extends on that, does it? What does it? How does it see its GCC neighbors and how it should interact? And how does it see GCC as a whole in terms of a defense entity? Well, you have to ask the Saudis, Richard. <laughs> uh, but I'll give you my own opinion. <laughs> Look, obviously they're close to the Emiratis. They're closer to the Emiratis and the Bahrainis than anybody else. Right. Okay. Uh, do they trust the Qataris now? Now that they've sort of kissed and reconciled, I don't know. You know, I think that the relationship obviously has much improved, but are they at a point to relate this strictly to defense, right? Are they at a point now where their differences, political, are no longer an obstacle to this defense integration that you're talking about, especially in the area of air and missile defense integration, right? Because this is right. this is the, what am I going to call it? This is the... Um, the most important defense mission in the entire region. This is where now they are vulnerable. This is where they're being attacked on a regular basis. And boy, if they could just come together, which we've been begging them to do for many, many, many years, right? And if they could develop this architecture with all these sensors that are integrated, with all the interceptors that uh, would um, be queued off um from you know uh with through early warning uh, systems that are shared uh if they could do that everybody would benefit and of course we would play the role of a <clears throat> facilitator enabler coordinator all of the above you know we share our satellite imagery with them and so on and so forth but are they at that point no but you know and uh, your what this conversation is fascinating to me is because again, I keep linking it back to the economic side. And so we have right. we have traditional links with Saudi Arabia. They're extremely meaningful: security, energy, um, uh, regional stability in terms of uh, Islamic co- countries, uh, uh, trade, any number of things. Saudi Arabia is an extremely important country to us, and we have patterns of behavior. Uh, on the economic side, I, I, I keep wondering why we don't do a better job of meeting them where they are now. Mm-hmm. And what they need now, and I hear now on the defense side, you know, we can we need to do a better job there of meeting them where they are now, and and, and evolving new means of uh, support and engagement. And I, I'm I'm ever hopeful that that you know some bright you know you know government functionary will come up with an idea that will catch fire and you'll actually do this. Hey, you know, instead of instead of talking about you know you know oil and and uh, and, uh, and and that sort of thing, to the to the uh, def, you know uh, to the exclusion of everything else. Why don't we talk about hydrogen and and uh, and nuclear and and any number of things and and venture capital and so on and so forth. So anyway, 
This is a fascinating conversation, Bilal. You know what we need to have those conversations, Richard, at a very minimum? Where? We need an ambassador. Well, there you go. Okay. I mean, what is the most immediate channel of communication? And by the way, we don't have one in UAE either. Nope, we don't. It's insane. Right. I don't understand. You know, obviously politics here is preventing uh, those kinds of appointments. But, you know, when you talk about those dialogues that you're just uh, referring to, right you you need an interlocutor that is actually present in the region that you can have communications with on a daily basis and, and this is this is no offense to martina strong and dcms out there that's not it but no but not at all they understand it well trust me they'll tell you first and foremost that we need an ambassador we need a boss to yeah. actually enable this kind of dialogue no this, it's not against them and you know this is something we trip over Constantly, and I don't understand. It, it, obviously, it's all domestic politics, and it's games here that that, that cost us there. Uh, but it, it's just a, it's just a deficit. It's a, it's an own goal that makes no sense, and we repeat that the 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 problem over and over and over. Yep, yep. Not just the Saudis and UAE; it's other countries as well where we don't have diplomatic representation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Al, you you put your finger on it. You know, I can trigger another conversation to go on for hours. I don't think we Uh-oh. should. I think we should stop here. Okay, we have an agreement. Did we leave? Did we leave anything untouched that, in terms of what you want to talk about? Uh, no, no. I think this was quite comprehensive. And and again, I I I'm so grateful, Richard, because uh, this is a story that needs to be told, right? Uh, as just like any other story, there's some good, some bad, some ugly. But you know, I I'm. I'm an optimist. I like to focus on the good because we really have an opportunity here for the studies to step up and actually play a much more constructive, effective security role in the region. And there's no alternative for that. They know that they have to do that. And all we can do is just try to help them out. And if we could just come together as USA team, first and foremost, and come up with one unified you know, piece of advice on how to actually transform, that'd be great. So we need to do our own homework. Well, we're grateful to you for bringing it to our attention because uh, we weren't even aware this was ongoing. And it's critical and it's important to Saudi Arabia and therefore it's important to us. So, I mean, this has been extremely informative. Bilal, remind our listeners and and viewers where they can purchase your upcoming book. Oh, Lucien, you are the man. Okay. (laughs) Uh, This is available on Amazon. Okay, let's start with that. But if you want an actual 50% discount, which I obviously strongly recommend, you go to the Lynn Reiner Publishers website. And then from there, you're going to find my book under the Middle East category. And then there you get a 50% discount, which brings it down to $47.5. Excellent. This is Rebuilding Arab Defense by Malal Saab. Mm Mm-hmm. Bilal, uh, come back and speak to us again, please. This was oh, awesome. I would love to. I'm, I'm, I have a feeling I'm not going to come back because I was a little bit too transparent and blunt. But uh, there you go. Well, well they'll we're be, not going to stop you. <laughs> there'll they'll, they'll be other topics that, yeah, you, you, you are now considered in the 966, uh, you know, library of, uh, you know, of advi- expert experts that we can call on. So you're stuck. Oh, uh, okay. I'm, I'm happy with that arrangement. No problem. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Excellent. Bilal. Richard, that was an awesome conversation we had with Bilal. We really appreciate his time joining us. Let's get to Yella now, Saudi in a minute. And as always, you have the honor, sir. Kick us off. Number one, uh, Aramco, Aqua Power, Saudi Arabian Airlines, Maaden, and Inoa, which is a water and energy firm based in, um, in Neom, 
sign non-binding MOUs. You know how we love non-binding MOUs, Lucian. <laughs> to become the first members of the Middle East and North Africa Regional Voluntary Carbon Market, which uh, the Public Investment Fund launched last year in cooperation with the Saudi Stock Exchange. PIF uh, said further partners on both the demand and supply side will be onboarded in the coming months ahead of an introductory round of auctions in the fourth quarter of 2022. Yeah, this is all part of the Saudi effort to achieve net zero by 2060. Very cool. I mean, it is a non-binding MOU, but it is progress in an announcement that was made last year um, and, you know, would be the first in the Middle East. It's definitely progress in the right direction. I don't know much about this. Um, I don't know much about anything, um, but this is this is it'll be cool to watch the space here because this is, you know, this is cool. And, you know, it is the PIF and the two biggest companies in Saudi Arabia. So um, very interesting. I think this for me, this is equivalent of, you know, planting your flag on the moon. So that's an overstatement, you know, with this with the expectation that one day you'll colonize the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very early stages. I love that they've called it Middle East and North Africa Regional Voluntary Carbon Market because the fact is carbon markets have grown rapidly. I mean, there's a, a you know, and, and I think there's more than, a, as of last November, over a billion in terms of carbon credits have been traded and, and that's expected to grow 15 times. This is in terms of people talking about voluntary carbon markets. The issue is... Uh, how to value it, uh, how to keep people. Essentially, there's, the, you know, you have different uh, guidelines and different things over different voluntary carbon markets, why some work and some don't. There is actually a UN-backed group called the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, which aims to ensure companies aren't using credits to avoid reducing their own emissions and aren't making claims that mislead the public. The group will issue guidance for companies to test this spring before finalizing it in time for COP27 in Egypt last year, later, later this year, which is, so what I'm saying is, is I think it's smart for the Saudis. The Saudis, you can see what they're, you can see their minds turning, you know, which is why they named it what they did. Let's be the first to set mm-hmm. up the structure for a region-wide carbon market, voluntary carbon market. And, and, you know, we'll fill in the details later. So, uh, so in that regard, I think it's I think it's uh, forward leaning. Uh, in reality, it's nothing right now, as we said. You know, this, a non-binding MOU. I'm not. So these are these are companies that are willing to be part of it. But we have to put we have to put some meat on this on this bone, and and um, and I think that will come. But I think it's intriguing. I, you know, when I saw this, the first thing I said, I said, that's very, that's very Emirati of, 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 of the Saudis in the sense of sort of being ahead of the curve and planting a flag early on something. So my hope is this actually comes to, comes to pass and it becomes a viable uh, carbon market. And the way of that's going to happen is they're going to have to put some, some binding uh, regulations and operational you know, guidelines to it. And then they'll start, as they say, you know, onboarding to ban and supply side. And, and maybe it becomes a real market. That's such a good point about the MENA VCM. I mean, and, and the planning of the flags just in the future, you know, in hopes that maybe the UAE and Qatar, they end up joining and say, OK, well, this is the MENA VCM. We're going to get onto this exchange. And the Saudis are, are the home to it. I also think it's interesting that the companies that are on this, it's not just Saudi Aramco, the biggest um, company, obviously, but, you know, Saudi Airlines. 
Uh, the airline industry is a huge polluter, obviously, but it's quite essential. Um, ACWA power, Aqua power. So it's just, it's cool. It's sort of all the big players. It's a big like promise. I mean, you and I have a non-binding MOU to play golf at some point soon. And it's just, you know, <laughs> what does it mean? But um, we both signed it. Um, but it's, it's just very interesting. It's, it's um, you know, it is very Emirati and it's, and it's aspirational nature and it's sort of forward looking in that way. Um, very much so. Yeah. Uh, it'd be very cool if it came to pass and became a real thing. And uh, but we have, you know, as I said, there's 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 voluntary carbon markets everywhere and they're exploding. Uh, some of them are, uh, you know, there's, you know, the, the, especially the agricultural based one where trees are having problems actually properly valuing things and people making claims. The, there's a huge one in Australia that's in turmoil. There's a large one in the U.S. that's turmoil. This may be different. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily going to be agricultural claims uh, or, you know, carbon capture as based in, in, in land or, or trees or that sort of thing. It'll be different. The issue is always for these things in, in carbon markets is it, are you actually abating emissions or are you just transferring things? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you buy a carbon credit, is that, uh, you know, is that in lieu of actually decarbonizing your own operations? And that's the challenge because, you, you know, ultimately you have to decarbonize your own operations. But it doesn't change anything. I think this is a, I think this is a really interesting concept, and I think it's great for them to, to, to basically plant the flag and say, hey, we're going to do one for MENA, and we're starting it now, and we're going to build it out, and hopefully it'll be something that's of real value. It's a mega VCM. <laughs> but you're right too, and you mentioned it. You mentioned it. It's a good PR move too. Yeah, if you're going to do you know, it either way, if you're going to, yeah. if this is the future, start it now, get the ball rolling, make you yeah. know, just just get it going, and then you know you won't be behind when you need to do it, which is cool. We're serious about our emissions and you know trying to abate emissions. So I mean, it's I, it's a good PR move. But again, it could be something real too. Mm-hmm. Yellow, yellow number two, Saudi Arabia plans to introduce 60 water projects worth 35 billion rials, which is $9.3 billion, as the kingdom accelerates efforts to become the world's largest desal market. Once completed, the projects will nearly triple Saudi Arabia's desalination capacity to 7.5 million cubic meters of water a day by 2027, wow. from 2.54 cubic meters of water per day in 2021. That's both a lot of money and a lot of water. It is. That's impressive. Impressive. What I like about this, though, is just just it's the practical application. We're talking, we're talking sixty water projects worth nine point three billion. So what does that mean? So these ends up being public-private partnerships, which is so. So as an example, a case in point, just this January, the Saudi Water Partnerships Company is going to be part of all this. Announced the groundbreaking of an eight hundred million dollar independent water project, which is. You know, which is coming online. It's going to be you know four hundred fifty thousand cubic uh, meters of capacity. So this is an example of what those sixty might look. But the the players in this one that that was just announced are a, a French firm, Angie, and two Saudi groups, Nesma and Moa. So what you have is. Uh, sort of three virtuous things. You have increased desal, so you know, you increase your water capability and, and that sort of thing. You increase foreign investments, for example, in this case, Angie, and you uh, increase participation in the private sector in Saudi Arabia. 
So all three things are very, well, let's take the last two. Those are really important parts of what Vision 2030 is trying to do. And if, let's say you can replicate those 60, let's say you do something similar like this Al Reyes Independent Water Project that Nesma, Angie, and Moa are part of. Let's say it's some scale up or down, that's done with 60 other ones. That's awesome because you, you, you will have uh, induced uh, uh, further foreign investment and you will have um, given access to private sector and to uh, a, a, significantly, uh, a significant investment opportunity. All good things. And Saudi Arabia needs a lot of water as it diversifies away from oil and all this growth is happening. I mean, they're building new cities everywhere. It's got to supply water. It doesn't mm-hmm. rain a lot in Saudi Arabia. I mean, when it does, it pours. But um, so this is, I mean, this is planning for growth, which is exciting for them. It is. And it's it's the privatization. You know, you're taking capital, you're taking public, public assets and privatizing them, which is, again, it, you know, moving it down to the private sector giving and the private sector very often says all right we've been you know we're being pushed out a little bit by PIF is everywhere but PIF is saying we're doing this to start industries and sectors and get them going in order to move them on to you this is an example of of existing assets you know significant water projects and 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 that sort of thing and tenders that we're going to try and move on to you the private sector and, and just to add to that, we had David DeRoche on the show a few weeks ago. He was talking a little bit about the privatization of this uh, defense industry. And he was essentially saying that this isn't like other privatization efforts going on where it's a big fire sale and it's just a rush to privatize. It's done you know, responsibly. People are taking their time. There are pr- public-private partnerships, too. And it's just it's cool to yeah. see Saudi in a position getting ahead of it. I mean, you know, because the other way to do it is like Russia did it and just everything's privatized right right away. It's a, a rush to do it and oh the goodness. people lose. So the oligarchs win, but the people lose. You're right. <laughs> We're not recording the show on the 966 super yacht today. It has been seized. <laughs> Son of a bitch. I was, I was so excited about my 966 super yacht. All right. Number three, the Saudi Super League, golf, will begin in June, and intention is now turning to the format and venue selected for its debut season. The upstart league has seen extensive rumor and speculation for several months. Live Golf International CEO Greg Norman announced that the league's eight tournament series will run from June 9 to October 30th and will comprise seven regular season events and a team championship grand finale match play. I'm so glad they didn't just fold up shop when they were unable to attract any real top 100 PGA names. There was, first of all, that was all the bad, wrong publicity to be drawing. It sort of was a fiasco. I'm glad they're just going ahead with this, getting it started, pushing the snowball off the cliff, you know, demonstrating that they can organize tournaments like this and have really interesting golf and televise it and have sponsorships. It's a lot of work and it's good to see them get it going. Um, I'm for one, I'm excited to watch more golf rather than less golf, which is always good. And who knows how this will grow in the future. I mean, if it does grow in the number of events and, um, starts to attract bigger names, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, although Greg Norman definitely tried. Um, (laughs) Very interesting. Richard, we didn't get our invites to participate, which is a little disappointing, but that's uh, yeah, maybe yeah. they got lost in the mail. I, I don't know, but um, <laughs> who knows? Um, I agree with you. It was a fiasco, and I don't know if the Saudis, I don't know if I can lay at the Saudis' feet. You know, this they suffered from, you know, in military terms, operational security, OPSEC, is 
paramount if you're trying to to do anything uh, with any kind of secrecy or uh, and when you watch this happen and it all sort of came to it came apart at that pebble beach tournament and where the, all the players got together and at that point there had been no announcements there, you know the league had not said it's going to do this or that it was just a rumor and the OPSEC, the operational security part, came in because they had interface with a bunch of players. So, the, and, and Phil Mickelson in, in particular uh, essentially used that in order to leverage uh, grievances of his own. Um, and, and so he was out there. And, and then when, when he was called out as being really out of line, uh, he immediately sort of threw the Saudis under the bus. And again, if you're at home in Saudi Arabia and you're Greg Norman, you're watching this, you're really powerless because, again, there's been no announcements. Uh, and there's, so it was, I thought it was unfortunate. And, uh, you know, I was not, I've never been a big fan of Phil Mickelson. I'm less of a fan now. I thought it was pretty cynical and hypocritical what he did. Um, but it doesn't change the fact, and you make a very good point, you know, it doesn't change the fact that the league is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't change the fact that the league is trying to target a, a deficiency, an entertainment deficiency, what, what you might call the unexploited inefficiency uh, in terms of the, P, of the PGA. And, and that's, you know, if they can, if they can put all this the, the, the sort of stumbling out of the gates aside, which I don't know is necessarily their, their fault, and just get on with it and do the work, there's some really fascinating things about this because let's face it. So, so the, the formats. I think the formats are really interesting. So, their formats of these are going to be 48 players over 54 holes, no cut, both individual and four-man team format. All right. So, when was the last time you watched 72 rounds of golf? When when was the last time you watched golf on Thursday outside of the Masters or the British Open? Pretty much never. That's when we right. record the 966. Right. So. so that's a cool idea. Mm-hmm. You know, this, uh, this TPC players tournament, uh, the, the lead group on, it got a little screwed up with, with weather, but the lead group went off on the last day at 4 p.m. So, and they, they, the play started at 7 a.m. All right, so that's, if you, I mean, that's just, that's just too much. Mm-hmm. How cool would it to have shotgun starts? 54 awesome. holes and shotgun starts. And how cool would it be to have teams? I mean, you can do anything number with teams. And how cool would it have, you know, you know, it's like LeBron and KD for the All-Star game, you know, drafting teams. I don't know if it'll be that. Um, we have to remember that, you know, in the 60s, uh, the American Basketball Association was an upstart league. And, but, you know, they popularized the three-point shot, which is, defines the, the current game. Uh, they popularized a slam dunk contest. Um, four of the seven ABA teams eventually joined the a- NBA. Uh, the American Football League, again in the 60s, upstart league, you know, they tried before. I mean, they introduced the two-point conversion, conversion, much more exciting style of play. Names on jerseys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the game clock on the stadium scoreboard. So prior to that, if you went to an NFL game, you had no idea what the game clock was. It wasn't even on the scoreboard. And you wouldn't even, you know, you, there was no names on jersey. So, so, and then again, all 10 AFL teams joined the merger with the NFL in 1970. So, so you, there's a track record of, of upstart leagues with good ideas and better entertainment value of succeeding. And I'm telling you, 
it's going to be absolutely fascinating when, when in, in a year or two, when we have a, you know, a um, Saudi Super League tournament with men and women. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, I, the Saudis, I hope they thumb their nose at everybody and say, yeah, we're this doing is what it. we're doing. What are you doing? And, you know, imagine, wouldn't that be cool? You know, if you had, if you had, so, you know, 48 people, so that's 12 teams, you know, so six and six, six, six teams of women, six teams of men, you know, the women tee off from a different tee and nobody's going to be worried about that, especially with the purses, the size they will be, but, you know, shotgun start, uh, and maybe other things. Uh, now, is that not entertaining? The PGA is so anti-change. I mean, it's a, a league based on tradition and, I'd be so interested to ask Greg Norman what he might do differently. You know, if he could just go back five months, you know, would he target only a select number of players? Would he maybe spend more time hyping what you were just talking about, these sort of innovative new formats and all this interesting stuff? I mean, what's the most entertaining golf one can watch per year? It's the Ryder Cup. And part of it is because it's such a spectacle and it's very different and you know, the fans are drunk and yelling. I mean, just, there's so much to sort of take in versus just the exact same golf tournament every single year with mostly the same names. So I'd be really interested in that. Um, to just to sort of see, like, maybe he has like a sort of, you know, uh, moratorium on, on his effort because I feel like they're going ahead with it anyway. And, you know, I wonder if he'd say, well, look, we're just targeting maybe 10 to 15 guys and we'll, we'll get everybody else to come or maybe not later. But just like you mentioned, that's such a great point about the, was it the ABA? Yeah. This is innovative. And, you know, I mean, I think part of the problem with the PGA tour is it's just not innovative at all. It does not want to change at all. And the threat of this Saudi back super league was that it was so cool and different and exciting. And the PGA said, wait a minute, we're really focused now on making sure people aren't hitting the ball too long off the tee, you know? And, <laughs> and so it did actually enact change in the PGA too. I mean, that, um, there is an increase in, in money, uh, to players who are attracting new fans via social media. I mean, it, it didn't, it has already left its mark on the PGA and they haven't even started their first tournament yet. So, I, I think it's all good. I think people are now going to view Greg Norman's effort as a failure, but I don't know if they'll view that view it that way in three years, four years. I agree, and that's one of the problems is the PGA was actually pretty quick on its feet, and I mm-hmm. say that because it, the Super League came along and they immediately allied with the European Tour, now the DP Tour. They upped the purses, they changed the schedule a little bit. They, you know, they 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 responded, which is you know kudos to PGA. But it doesn't change, and again, I think it was unfortunate how this all happened because they sort of got smeared right out of the gate. And maybe, I'm certain they overreached, but a lot of it, again, I think was operational security. If you could, if everyone had just shut up mm-hmm. and not talked about or speculated or in, in, in Phil Mickelson's case, used it as leverage to get something else that he wanted, um, you, wouldn't have had the, you wouldn't have had such a mess. But like we're saying, it doesn't change the fact that it's a good idea and it has entertainment value. And if they can just do the work and let it roll, it's quite possible that, you know, it becomes a very attractive thing. And, and the, always the, the, the proof for any, kind, any, any sporting event is, is TV coverage. And if it's entertaining enough to get TV coverage and start becoming in revenue and then getting sponsorship revenue and that sort of thing, there you go. It's a real thing. 
And you know, if you're talking seven, eight, 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 eight events each se- uh, season, they become almost uh, you know a destination. They almost become like a you know, I can't wait for the next one. And you know, is is you know, is team is you know, what's the next one going to be? Is it going to be team uh, team women against team men? Is it going to be you know, whatever it is, whatever, however you want to set it up. But it's a uh, I think it has merit, and I think I'd like to see it succeed because I think it could be really, really entertaining. Mm-hmm. You can get in touch with us by e- emailing us at the nine six six podcast at gmail dot com or on Twitter, on Facebook, YouTube. Richard, about seventy percent of the comments that we get are in response to our golf segments, <laughs> and there are so many to go through. People talking smack about our takes on golf, which I truly love to read. I haven't even gotten through all of them yet, but um, this is just a popular topic. It's what people know about Saudi Arabia right now. And that's, you know, what we try to do here with the 966 is just have a conversation about not just what's going on with Saudi Arabia now, but, you know, what really matters to Saudi Arabia. And golf doesn't really matter that much to Saudi Arabia right now. Um, And the fact that it was a Saudi backed Super League, you know, sort of made people jump to conclusions about it. You know, and uh, maybe course. those conclusions were, were a little bit outdated. Um, but, of course. Um, you know, one of these days we'll have a we'll have a comment reading contest, and um, I'm there's, some, there's I, some good ones in there for sure. I'm, I'm guessing I didn't make any friends with my Phil Mickelson comments. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't think we made a lot of friends with these golf segments, but people are tuning in, so and it's good to hear <laughs> any feedback and any comment any of you guys have, whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> Yella number four, Saudi Arabia State Oil Company Aramco pledged to hike investments by around 50% this year as it reported a doubling in 2021 profits, a doubling in profits. Aramco benefited from more than 50% surge in oil prices last year as increased COVID-19 vaccination rates and loosening restrictions resulted in demand outpacing supply. It rained money on Aramco all last year, and their profit reached $100 billion. Um, I don't have a lot to say about this other than uh, Saudi Aramco is going to do what Saudi Aramco does, which is invest. And and that's why it's in the position it is now. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, I, you don't see you don't see a doubling of, you know, government wages which is, again, is a sunk cost. It's not a smart way to use things. You don't see everyone gets a, uh, a lucid air. I could go with that, but, you know, that's not a smart use of money. What you see is, uh, you know, an investment in securing uh, a whole range of energy, uh, you know, advances in, in, in their energy production and capability, and that's why Saudi Arabia, that's why Saudi Arabia is a pivotal player in in energy markets across the globe is because they are responsible stewards of their assets. And I think what doesn't get a ton of attention, I mean, a lot of this investment is going upstream, but, you know, Saudi Aramco has a venture capital arm, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco Energy Ventures, and they're investing in new clean tech. They know that, you know, by 2060, they're going to be net zero. And they also know that, you know, eventually the world isn't going to be, you know, running on oil as much as it does now. They're doing a lot with this. And and so, you know, it is quite the windfall for Aramco, but they're investing so that they can have more capacity in a few years. They're investing to diversify their own assets. So you're right. They're not giving everybody a lucid, although we are still awaiting delivery of our lucid air um, <laughs> as part of our sponsorship here. But um, I guess another thing that may have gotten lost in the mail, but um, 
very interesting. Uh, good for Aramco, and they will pay a dividend on that as well. So yeah, uh, yeah, they'll keep that up. And they paid a seventy-five billion dollar dividend last year when they didn't. You know, it was a down year. So you know, it's just it's it, it's it's good corporate management. So mm-hmm. uh, kudos to Aramco. Number five. Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Investment and the Jada Fund of Funds have teamed up to create a platform that will connect Saudi entrepreneurs with investors abroad, according to a report in The National. Catalyze Saudi will host a series of events, the first of which will take place this month in Jeddah and Riyadh under the theme of disruptive technology. And Richard, in a few weeks, we'll have Amjad Ahmad uh a uh, Saudi venture capitalist. Um, he's not a venture capitalist, uh, Saudi venture capitalist, but he is a venture capitalist in the space, um, joining us on the 966 to talk about entrepreneurship in the kingdom. This is a really meaningful, practical way for foreign investors to connect with the red hot um, entrepreneur space in, in Saudi Arabia. New companies are being formed all over the place. And some of these companies are IPOing in Saudi Arabia. And most of those IPOs are oversubscribed. So this is a, a very practical way to connect Saudi entrepreneurs with foreign dollars, foreign money, excuse me. And this is, you know, this is a, this is a real thing. This isn't just an announcement. It isn't just a, an MOU uh, non-binding. This is a real practical step that is being taken to get Saudi entrepreneurs to lift their new businesses off the ground. Really cool. I, uh, I can't wait for him He's, he, to be on. We're going to learn a lot on that one. Yeah, venture capital funding in Amina startup surged to 2.6 billion in 2021. Um, it's Saudi Arabia and, and that the, basically the leading markets are Saudi, UAE, and Egypt. There's a tremendous uh, number of things going on. This Jada Fund of Funds is is not an unusual thing for a large uh, investment firm to do. You know, you want to get you want to get money into the hands of experts who actually know the sector, and so. So, for example, in the same year that this Jada Fund, I think it was established in 2019, uh, the UAE Mubadala, one of their uh, sovereign wealth funds, did you know took 150 million dollars and did sort of the same thing. Um, the interesting thing is this Catalyze Saudi initiative it sort of goes above and beyond and just placing funds, you know, in acceptable and qualified venture capital firms. It, it's it's you know this is nice, this is pretty neat. So it's inviting foreign investors and non-Saudi investors to come and meet some of these startups. It's quite an opportunity. And it speaks to, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia trying to tend to every aspect of its of its uh, investment ecosystem and trying to really support this. I mean, they see this as, they see this, you know, as they say. I mean, part of the Vision 2030 is to increase the contribution of SMEs uh, to GDP from current 21 percent to 35 percent by 2030, and and this kind of thing, uh, you know, is is a big part of it. So it's it's cool to see. And like I say, it's even even beyond just here. Here's money. You can be giving money to smart VC investors. This is a little beyond that. Let's let's bring a you know let's 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 call a meeting and have a bunch of people come in and see it all the new you know, companies that are in, in disruptive technology and maybe get some investment that way too. By the this way, the, just to, just to, sorry to interrupt, one of, the things, uh, one of the things that we'll be talking about when, uh, when Ahmed is on, Ahmed Amjad is on, is um, he's part of a, a Global 500 investment group which is US-based, so which is looking at these investments in the region and in Saudi in particular. So this is an example of this Catalyze Saudi. You know that there's gonna be people 
and he's going to know all sorts of people. He may be there himself for this sort of thing. Very cool. Just worth worth adding a shout out here. We've had just the coolest and most amazing guests on the 966. It really makes us a lot smarter, Richard, um, having a really great (laughs) guest on each week. And we're talking about a wide range of issues. I mean, almost every industry. And we're, we're all over the place with it in a good way. And all of these guests have been organized and booked and convinced to join the 966 by my colleague, Mr. Wilson here, who has worked really hard for it and reached into his probably the deepest pockets of contacts uh, of, of Saudis in Washington. Um, so he deserves a huge hat tip for that. Um, well done, Mr. W- Mr. Wilson. Uh, seriously, good stuff. Thank you. This has been one of the, and, and you know, we make a good team because we, we cover all aspects of putting this together. By the way, putting this together is not easy. You know, we had a full-time job. We were doing all sorts of stuff. And then we decided, hey, you know, let's put on it. Let's do the 966. It's another full-time job. But, no, this is actually uh, accessing my network and talking to people and getting to dive into all relationships and, and, and bringing them into this and, and seeing their response has been just tremendously rewarding because almost uniformly people go, hey, that's, I'd love to. That's really interesting. And when they hear it, they go, I like the format. And, they, and, and when they walk away or after we've done it, they, they have almost uniformly said, that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. This um, is a lot of fun to do. I mean, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yes, well done, sir. I will move to the sixth and final Yala today. Saudi Arabia is planning to raise its port occupancy rate to 70% by 2030. CNBC reported citing the head of the Saudi Ports Authority. This comes as the transshipment rate at the Saudi ports grew by more than 35% in 2021, Omar bin Talal Hariri disclosed. Shipping and logistics, huge in the kingdom. That is ambitious. Very cool. You know, I looked at this and I, I couldn't, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't say what the current occupancy rate was, <laughs> you know, so we're going to rate it, raise it to 70% by 20. What is it now? I couldn't find that. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's 28, that's pretty impressive. It's a 69. I don't know. But, uh, but it, more to a serious point, I, I, I went back. There is such a thing as the world, the World Bank has a global container port performance index. It's trying to understand sort of just, Saudi ports, and there's 10 Saudi seaports. Um, and this is interesting. So from this report, World Bank report, more than four-fifths of the global merchandise trade by volume are carried by sea, and approximately 35% of total volumes and over 60% of commercial value is shipped in containers. Uh, this is what this report says. The development, quote, the development of high-quality and efficient container port infrastructure is a key contributor to successful export-led strategies both in developing and developing countries, develop, developing and developed countries. So we're talking, like you say, you're talking about logistics, and you're talking about the, the $26 billion, uh, you know, transshipment road from, you know, the east, east coast to the west coast in Saudi Arabia. Um, the, we had other logistics uh, just today. Why am I uh, looking for it? But one of the interesting things about the World Bank report is they do a uh, a measure. Uh, they you know they they measure efficiency across the ports, and uh, it, East Asian ports dominate. So of the top fifty, almost the top the top one was Yokohama, Yokohama, Japan. Number two was King Abdullah port in Saudi Arabia. 
uh, which is at the King Abdullah Economic City on the Red Sea, King Abdullah Economic City, the future site of Lucid. Um, so, but they go through, and, and the highest ranked European port was in 10th place, 10th place in Spain. Uh, the, high, the only other North, uh, let me see, in North America, in the Americas, the, the 25th port was in Mexico. And uh, there's no other North American port in the top 50. Uh, Saudi Arabia had four of them in the top 100, essentially. King Abdullah Port was number two. Jubail, number 21. Jubail on the, in the eastern province on the Gulf. Jeddah, 53. And Dammam was 102. We'll give it in the top 100. Um, anyway, I thought that was interesting. So, yes, logistics, 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 and, uh, and shipping is a big part of that. Will Neom have a big port uh, associated with it? We'd have to assume yes, maybe somewhere near the floating city. Oxagon, right. Oxagon, but um, yeah, huge, uh, huge for them. Interesting interesting uh, data to add there, Richard. That's very fascinating. Um, the 966 mega yacht is parked outside of Jeddah port right now. Um, we're not paying the fee, so we're just floating out there. And I don't even know if we're tied down. We may just be wandering off, but speaking well, no. of wandering off. Since, since the 966 mega yacht is a little dingy with oars, I don't think anybody's paying attention to it. <laughs> um, Richard, great discussion. Thank you so much. Again, follow us on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, um, Apple Podcasts, wherever you wherever you want to listen to us or watch us, it's all there. It was segmented out and everything. So um, follow us, subscribe to us, and give us a uh, rating if you wouldn't mind. It really helps us a lot. Richard, thank you so much. What a great discussion. Thank you, Lucian. Awesome. Always good. 32. Always good. Back to our other full-time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>